Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Get Finch with Brown News preview show, sort of a hybrid between our regular show and our preview show, uh, and you'll see why. Uh, I'm Eric Devin, and joining me are Nathan Staples uh, and Philip Bargiel to look forward to uh, the Coupe de League final, as well as to look back at France's two matches this last midweek. Uh, France defeated Luxembourg on Saturday 3-1 with a brace from Olivier Giroud and a penalty from Antoine Griezmann. Benjamin Mendy made his first start in that match, contributed an assist, while Kylian Mbappe also took his international bow, coming on in the match's dying stages. On Tuesday at the Stade de France, Spain defeated the host 2-0, with video refereeing at the center of two goals, overruling an Antoine Griezmann strike and awarding a goal to Gerard de Lefeo that had originally been ruled out for offside. France's youth teams were in action as well, to enter 20s preparing for the World Cup in South Korea in May with a tournament against England, Senegal, and Portugal giving a decent account of themselves with a win, a loss, and a draw. 19's fortunate, though. Where the winner will qualify for the summer's tournament in Georgia, but they failed to beat any of Israel and Bosnia, not exactly a murderer show of opponents there, but they won their qualification group and ended any hope of a second consecutive European Under-19 championship. A bit of a disappointing result that they couldn't follow in the footsteps of the previous that is all the news for now. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at GFFN, online at www.getfootballnewsfrance.com, and also to rate and subscribe us on iTunes. It does help with our visibility on that platform if that's how you listen to us. So, gents, let's start with the video referee. I know you, both of you gentlemen have strong feelings on this. And then Nathan, I'll come to you first. Uh, video refereeing was used for the first time ever in that friendly between France and Spain on Tuesday night, and it was decisive. Uh, you know, in, in a match that would have been competitive, it would have altered the results. Uh, had the referees uh, not made those calls, it would have ended in a one-one draw. So I'll start with you, Nathan. You published a piece today on the site. Could you summarize it for us and add anything else uh, to your perspective on this matter? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think it's great. Um, I really enjoyed the use of. It was probably my favorite part of the match, strangely enough, that the use of the technology. I think that, for me at least, the decisions were relatively speedy compared to what I thought they might be. Um, they were correct, which is the most important thing. And yes, it might have sucked some of the air out with the first goal, but at the same time, the argument would be it's the first implication of it. I don't think it was communicated to the crowd very well. The referee's decision, obviously, it seemed a little bit uh, puzzling to them, which obviously contributed to that. Um, but I, I loved it. I thought that especially the the offside um, decision um, to not give the first goal and the penalty were perfectly fine time-wise. I think it would have taken just as long to get the game restarted as it did for the referee to get the decision through. And the same with the penalty. It, it takes as long for a goalkeeper to try and psych a player out, really, <laughs> while he puts it on the spot. So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it made... It's strange at the end of the game, at least here in England, because uh, Paul Lynch was trying to fumble around, trying to think of something to say other than a moan about the referees. And he had a little bit of a moan about the timings and the, uh, people have, have had an issue of football's not black and white, but it should be black and white. I know the other thing will be that subjectivity will still come into it because it's still opinion-based and not all these decisions will be reviewable, which is right. And also... Um, they're not going to get them absolutely bang on like they, they did at the weekend. Although uh, on in midweek, sorry. Although the Delafeo one is very close, but I think they got it right. Um, there will so there will still be a debate because there will be still some occasions where they uh, are borderline or do still get it wrong. So 
I think it's a really good step forward. It helps referees with some really, really difficult decisions because, I mean, as clearly shown the other night that they got two linesmen calls wrong quite quick, in quite quick succession. And that happens. And uh, they, I think um, another great place is Sky Sports have done quite a number of things with referees. And there's a good video on there where you try and test your own style of guessing these offside calls when they're in full motion and you only get one look at it and you're also not moving the, on a static camera and it, it's really, really difficult to tell and giving them, the referees, that extra little edge and, and especially when it's such in, in such important moments where it decides games, uh, I, I think it's really important and a great step forward and hopefully something we see more of in the future. Yeah, I have to say as someone who was an amateur referee, uh, up until my days in university, I I think particularly on offside decisions, uh, it 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 certainly has um, has something to be said for it. But that that being said, I also can take the opposite point, which Philip will give us. Uh, and that I think the time to award the second goal was a little bit lengthy and, and was a little bit frustrating. I think you see that Hugo Lloris was a little upset about how long it took to have that awarded. So Philip, your counterpoint to Nathan. Well. My current point is that um, I've always been against it and still uh, I'm against it, but I can see all the progress that has been made um, even before Tuesday evening's game. Um, saying the goal line technology, I think it's, um, I actually think it's, it's pretty good. Uh, we had some uh, pre chaotic decisions being made about this, um, about those kind of decisions. I remember the, some, some balls being like, um, uh, a couple of uh, more, more than a couple of inches behind the line, and the goal not being given because the referee was blind. So, I mean, I do, I do get that um, it'll be, um, it, it'll have to come. But I guess what, what I would like to, to see is uh, some, some kind of um, um, limitation, like they have in tennis, of, uh, of having offside calls and not, uh, not playing the offside rule and um, and um, appealing for an offside, offside decision uh, every time. And you know, to be honest, I think in due time it will, it will be that kind of uh, that kind of situation. I mean, we didn't have anything basically in the first half. Um, finished uh, it finished nil nil. Spain played very well. Uh, we didn't play particularly particularly well. Then second half, Griezmann scores a goal. Cruzeiro is offside on the goal, and then Spain uh, score score a goal. Uh, that is uh, that uh, everybody thinks it's offside. It isn't, and uh, those those decisions go go in front. I'm still um, against that kind of that kind of thing, but I suppose if if there's going to be some kind of ruling of uh, an an offside, um, uh, shall we say, offside moaning limitation, then yeah, I guess that, that'd be okay. So let's talk about the matches themselves. I, if I oh, could, Eric, right. I just want yeah, to quickly jump in for two quick points. A, my point of view is maybe slightly skewed for the fact I watch a lot of basketball and NFL and they use, mm. obviously, of, um, video refereeing technology to um, improve decisions. And in all honesty, for the argument that it takes a long time, watch some of the NBA games where they try and find if it's a foul or if it's a, if it's a line of sight call or something like that. It takes forever compared mm -hmm. to that. Um, and also, very quickly, uh, I was a bit disgruntled by the players' reactions from France as well. It would have been interesting to see had they gone in their favour, their reactions. And also, I, I, it almost felt like they were blaming for the sake of blaming of a really average performance. But I'll, I'll, we'll go on to the game now, I think. Yeah, so I wanted to, to address, I, I don't think that this was, I think neither, neither of you would disagree that this was a really underwhelming set of performances for France, uh, given the quality of opposition 
I think they would have liked a little bit more against Spain, even if it were just friendly. So, Nathan, we'll, we'll start with you. Uh, Olivier Giroud, he had a double, took his chances really well. Maybe could have had a hat trick against Luxembourg, but I think certainly worked incredibly well as a focal point of attack. Has he finally silenced his critics, or are there is there still a reason to question his presence in the team and indeed his presence in the starting eleven? Uh, I don't think he'll ever silence his critics. He's one of those players that I think will always polarise unless he grabs one of those seasons by the neck. But uh, it reminds me a little bit in a sense of Dimitar Berbatov when he was at Manchester United where everyone questioned his reason in the side. Everyone wondered why he was playing. And then he scored 30 goals in a season and then everyone realised, oh yes, he's a really good player. I don't think unless Giroud breaks through that kind of barrier, I don't think he'll ever not silence his critics despite his decent performance against Luxembourg, which was needed. They, It was a bit of a tepid affair, really. Um, but at the same time, at, at brief moments in the game against Spain, you saw what could happen with the quick attacking players that they can play up front. Although I think they were a little bit too narrow and I, I think that playing Griezmann, Gamero and, and Batwoman, we'll get onto that later, that it was a bit too awkward. But the the fleeting moments where they played it really quickly and played um, between each other and interplay and bits like that, it looked really exciting. Um, but I always think, and I, I wrote the piece before the international break, that Giroud deserves a place in this side. I think he always gives you that second option that you desperately need in in international football because it can it can get stagnant it can get um a little bit lacking in quality on occasion sometimes teams cancel each other out sometimes a weaker side will defend to the hilt and you're struggling to break them down as we've seen in the euros and in some qualifiers so you need that second option of someone like Giroud who's a bit more of a battering ram than the other strikers they have and and is is much better then people really give him credit for like he for example the couple of goals the only worry is um obviously not playing as often for Arsenal and keeping that fitness and keeping that sharpness because um, he can be a player who plays in streaks. So I don't think he'll ever silence his critics, but he did put in a good performance and, and he showed why Deschamps picks him because he does give them a plan B when if oh, or a plan A, I suppose, that gives them another option, I mean. All right, Philip, I wanted to ask you about another player who's attracted no small level of controversy in the recent past. That's Dimitri Payet. Some people are questioning whether he even deserves to be in the side, yet he started in the competitive match. Uh, I mean, is, is this, it, did he show that it was too much for him? I mean, and also what about Thomas Lamar, who, you know, barely features and is forced to play in a midfield three, uh, even when he does come on? Hmm. It's, kind of, it's kind of strange because uh, there was a one point where um, Dimitri Payet was not Deschamps' favorite player. And uh, he had, uh, we basically had to have the whole media pleading Deschamps to uh, to call him up. And now uh, he seems to be, he seems to be one of uh, one of Deschamps' favorite. My guess is um, Deschamps is uh, is calling him up for saying that he is um, uh, quite a reliable player because he had uh, he did score important goals um, at Euro 2016, and that I believe he will still be called upon and um, be trusted. In, in the qualifying games. Having said that, he will. I, I, I do hope that uh, some guy like Thomas Lamar, who's having an outstanding se outstanding season and is an outstanding player and already has this kind of understanding with Benjamin Mendy, who played very well against Luxembourg, one of the best players with um, one of the best performance performers, sorry, on, on Saturday evening. So 
you, you can't you kind of wish that uh, Pai could could drift either either centrally or, or on the right wing, staying a four two three one maybe playing another formation in another friendly. We saw that the uh, uh, diamond shape four four two against Spain didn't work very well. Was a bit better in the second half, but really didn't just didn't it just didn't go, um, and um, you just you just um, wish for that. But uh, I I do believe that in in the short term, Pai will stay uh, as a, as the the regular left winger. But there will be there will be competition for sure. All right. I mean, let's we I do remember Pai turned thirty, I believe, yesterday. So he, you know, perhaps happy birthday, happy birthday. Perhaps this is his last tournament cycle either way. Mm. Nathan, I want to ask you about Ousmane Dembele. For for me, he was France's best player in the match against Luxembourg, continually drawing free kicks, really stretching play. What's his best position and in what what formation? Good question because he's he's been moved around a number of times for um, maybe not so much for France, but obviously he was more of a winger at Rennes and, and whilst he's moved to Dortmund, he's played on the right, he's played a little bit on the left and played in the sort of centre midfield position as well, which is all good experience to give him a little bit more freedom. But I I do prefer him on a wing, in all honesty. Um, I think that his um, ability to stretch play um, out wide, I think his ability to, um, all his willingness more often than to go and beat the defender in front of him, um, really adds to his game and, and really stretches teams and makes them think about where he is on the pitch a little bit more than uh, a central role maybe does. Um, I, I think he's um, a little bit better at crossing the ball than maybe his, his slide rule passes, although he has got much better at that at the moment with the, with the places he's playing at, at, in Dortmund. But um, it all depends on what friends decide to do tactically in the future, really, whether where he plays, I think. Um if he carries on in that trajectory he's at the moment, I think he's probably going to be one of those ones to start. I think that him on one side and Mbappe on the other side of maybe someone like Griezmann, I know that's maybe my personal point of view, but I think that sounds quite exciting because both him and Mbappe may be more inside forwards if they want to be on, on those respective sides and both of them like to attack defenders with pace and that really will put the frighteners on centre-backs, especially modern centre-backs who were... Uh, there's not many around that can defend, or at least in partnerships and in the international stage. So, I'd like to see that. And and like I say, like you said, yeah, I think he was uh, excellent against Luxembourg. I think he's had an excellent season in Dortmund. He's really, really rising. And again, which isn't surprising because he was fantastic last season as well. Um, and yeah, I think I think on a wing is is the best place to play him. I would personally play him on the right wing because that's where he's more comfortable with at least against um with his recent games against Dort- uh, for Dortmund so play him there hopefully that's where he ends up in at club level as well because then it, it obviously adds a little bit more consistency to his game but yeah I prefer him in that position especially with the, again the depth they have in midfield and I think he's a little bit better than the other wingers in those positions as well. All right. You hinted there at Francis' indecisiveness and tactics, and Philip, I wanted to come to you on this. They played a quote-unquote 4-2-3-1 on Saturday against Luxembourg, really more of a 4-4-2 with reason staying pretty close to Giroud. Uh, this formation's okay, you know, maybe with maybe with Lamar on left in place of Paye. Uh, but the question then would be, who should partner Conte? Now, I, I have to offer a mea culpa here. I, I had sort of Question Conte's technical, technical flexibility and his limitations, but I think he did reasonably well against Luxembourg. He tried to get forward with the ball at his feet. He showed a few decent passes as well. I, I do think he's an important part of this team. So my mea culpa there. 
But the question is, if this 1442, whatever you want to call it, is the way forward, who partners him? Is it a waste to play Paul Pogba to deep position? You also have Blaise Matuidi, Adrian Rabio, Timmy Bakayoko, Quentin Toliso. How, how, if you approach this system, which seems to be France's best, uh, and we saw that in the, in the knockout rounds of the Euros as well, how do you populate that personnel-wise, Phil? Are you talking about the 4-4-2 we played against Spain uh, with Griezmann behind the two strikers? No, with 4-4-1-1, some kind of... Well, for, it was more of a 4-2-3-1, 4-4-2. The same that they had yeah. played in the knockout rounds of the Euros and in the max, match against uh, Luxembourg with Conte as one of two central midfielders. The thing is, I, uh, it's really hard for me to say this, but I do believe that Matuidi's um, best years are um, starting to, um, to be behind him. And I, I honestly think that Pogba and Conte need to be playing together uh, on a regular basis in order to, uh, to have a better understanding because I just can't really see um, what else we, uh, we, we could have. I mean, sure, we, we do have some very talented uh, central midfielders in Tolisso and um uh, and rabio but uh, they didn't they they kind of proved against Spain that they weren't exactly there yet and um i just can't i just can't see Deschamps uh, saying okay uh i've got Kante, and uh, yes he can win all day he's some kind of uh, very uh, uh modern makilili but I do have a World Cup to um to look forward to and i just don't i just don't see Tolisso or rabio dislodging Ormatridi dislodging the problem of this um, of this position. Um, sadly, unless unless something something big happens, um, it's some some kind of uh, some kind of experience. And also, I think that if 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 um, he doesn't play this duo, um, he'll just get massacred. He'll just get massacred. And it's yeah, it's an impossible situation to be in, of course, because if um, if both of them are not playing that well, or rather, if the relationship is not going too well. Uh, of course, people will moan as well. So it's a very, uh, very difficult situation for Deschamps to be in. But I would keep uh, Pogba next to uh, next to Conte. All right, Nathan. Tactics question then for you. Speaking about that diamond they played uh, Tuesday night, was really poor. What went? I mean, what went wrong here for you? I, I think the diamond. Now I'll, I'll say this. I think as as has a lot of potential. I think that mm. you, you could play Dembele at the, at the point. Uh, behind a partnership of Griezmann and Giroud, and those central midfielders could be, say, Conte, Pogba, and Rabio, Tolisso, Bakayoko. Take your pick on the right side of the central midfield. But what was the problem for you with that formation on Tuesday? Nick? Yeah, it was, it, it was it was a strange one because it was you would have expected Griezmann to be the focal point, but he was more of the center attacking midfielder at times. He was the one to drop deep below. Uh, Gamero and, and and Bap at times, but Mbapp was also maybe a bit too far to the left. He was playing more um, where we see him at Monaco a little bit more, and it, it, it that really it really sort of jumbled them out. Like I think you've mentioned, you know, Charlotte he was a little bit too defensive um, for one thing. I think that um, him being further back sort of stifled that right hand side where there was no one on that side at times um, because Gamero was so narrow and sometimes Mbappe was too far to the left. So there was almost no space in that area. So Griezmann will maybe occasionally drift in that area, but there will be no one to put the ball into. So it was a, it was a weird menagerie of it. And I think as well that the decision to play Rabiot and Tolisso, while it was welcome, I think they both kind of 
cancelled each other out. And I'm not sure if it's also tactics-wise whether Deschamps has maybe given them the wrong instructions because it felt like, for, at least for me and my, and my view, and I don't know if you agree with this, Eric, because obviously you watch Tolisso a lot, but it's almost as if he got uh, Rabio and Tolisso mixed around. I think Rabio was too far forward too far often, and I think he's much better as a box-to-box midfielder, but from a deeper position. And um, Tolisso was too far, f- um, too far back. He's better closer to the striker. He wasn't close enough to Griezmann or Gamero at times. And that imbalance made it look more like a strange 4-3-3 with a false nine rather than a, a diamond. It, was, mm-hmm. it almost seemed mm-hmm. cobbled together, unfortunately. It didn't really work as a system. I think it could, like you mentioned with the players you mentioned, and, and I think even with Rabio and Tolisso in there, because Rabio is good as a box-to-box player when you ask him to play more defensively. It works better, but it was almost as if they'd not worked on it in training enough. And that can it's a it's a factor of international football full stop that you switching tactics has to be built very quickly because of obviously tactical flexibility and rush teams that change all the time, especially with the amount of young players they've got at the moment. Um it can be really difficult. So it just looked a little cobbled together and it never came along. I don't think Rabio or Toliso understood their positions. I don't think the the fullbacks were advanced enough, often enough, um, and the attacking three were really muddled in where exactly they should be. Especially Gamero coming a little, maybe a little bit too narrow when, uh, especially when Griezmann's dropping into a hole. So there's things to work on if they want to do the diamond. I personally prefer a four-two-three-one or a four-three-three with the players they've got, um, but it's maybe something they can tactically flex, but uh, do tactically. Because of, I'm, I'm assuming they wanted to overload that midfield, especially with Spain's tikka taka style and Isco being someone who's playing more narrower. Um, but it just didn't work at all. It, it it had its brief moment in the in the second half where they sort of got on the front foot in the first five minutes. They started to maybe it was it was morphed more into a four three three then. Um, but after that, again, they just it looked confusing to me. Yeah, I like the diamond, um, uh, and I do agree that the the fullbacks didn't um, uh, probably didn't do enough um, to um, to stifle Spain's midfield. But um, yeah, I, I just um, I just I just felt like uh, Tulisa and Arabia were were basically two players um, uh, used to playing in the same well, used to playing in the same position. Uh, Tulisa, let's let's say he's more. Uh, adaptable in some kind of um, in some kind of formations, and I really would like to see him play as a number ten, as a as a, a as an attacking midfielder, which was basically Griezmann's role um, on Tuesday against Spain. So, lots and lots of um, of options there. Yeah, but, it's just um, a matter of putting pieces together. He 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 needs he needs a lot of friendlies to to test that, and maybe maybe he could test it um, in the qualifiers. But it doesn't look likely if he's going to play his uh, very uh, cautious four-two-three-one against a side like Luxembourg. I mean, uh, chances are he'll he'll play four-two-three four-two sorry four-two-three-one uh, until Fansar mathematically through to the World Cup. Yeah, I mean there is there is the match against Sweden. If they if they win that, there it'd be hard to see them falling out of first place. Uh, that being said, I, I do want, I did want to finish our international chat here with uh, one final mention, and I wanted to get uh, both of your opinions on this. Nathan, I'll come to you first, and that's Florian Tovan. Uh, there was a lot of uh, surprise and excitement surrounding his selection. Uh, he didn't play. Uh, you could say he's a victim of circumstances, that is the tactics versus Spain and the situation that it was a close match until late on versus Luxembourg. 
But you could also say that he's a player who's not to that level, that he's undeserving. Um, so, Nathan, I just wanted to get your brief take on Tovan, and then Philip will come to you after Nathan. I think in terms of the get, reason he didn't play, is more of a victim of circumstance, similar to a couple more that didn't really play like Kimpembe, although obviously they were late call-ups. But, yeah, he might have been reserved for that Luxembourg game, I think, if... if France were in a more comfortable position earlier on. I think he would have come on maybe with about 30 minutes to go, maybe 25 to um, give him a bit of that run out in a, what is actually the competitive game, but against Spain, yeah, the tactics, that that was the strange one for me. I, I think the tactics didn't work anyway. And when they made the substitutions, they sort of adjusted it anyway. So it might've made sense to bring him on in that one and give him a go, but they have so many players in that area. I can understand why, they maybe went against it. And it seems a shame for him because he did seem really excited. Um, there was a, a slightly funny video looking at it back now that he was sort of the first one at, at training to at the meetup and, and willing and raring to go. So it's a shame for him not to get the call-up. And I don't think he's undeserving, really, although there is a lot of talent in those areas. Um, I, th I think he's at least on the precipice of that squad, maybe just probably one of those ones on the outside looking in unless he's on terrific form come the World Cup or the Euros after that. But um, yeah, I think it was more a victim of circumstance than anything he'd done uh, that he didn't get to play in the, either of the games. Yeah. yeah, I think it was pretty much touch and go um, whether he was he was going to start against in, in either game. And um, I think the fact that uh, the diamond shape 4 for 2 with additional shows against Spain was probably the, um, the catalyst of that because... Um, I don't really see Tovar playing anywhere else than on the right wing. So coming coming back inside with his with his left foot, I, I honestly don't see a um, a starting role for 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 Tuva if he if he is on the plane to, um, to go to Moscow. Uh, I see him as uh, uh, some kind of a late sub who will uh, work the left back um, and uh, work work the defence late on. Uh, but that's that's about it. Uh, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think Kixley Coman is another player who was in the squad mm. at the Euros and his struggle with injury, but I think you know, it's, it's something, something we can't forget about. I think, you know, come come 15 months from now, we'll probably be seeing not dissimilar squad to this one, but I think Coman is a, is a strong candidate to replace uh, Tovan in that set of players. So I think, you know, a somewhat disappointing uh, pair of matches for France, but let's... Uh, Let's move on now to the weekend's big event. It's Saturday's Coupe de la Ligue final. Uh, a few things to note. Uh, for Monaco, they will be missing uh, Fabinho. He's suspended. Gibril Sidibe and Radama Falcao are still doubts through injury. Uh, so, Nathan, I'll start with you. Is this a good time for PSG to face Monaco, who are obviously placing less emphasis on this? I want to read a quote from Fabinho. Uh, and this is on Ligue our ultimate goal is to win the league. The Champions League is an adventure and we'll try to go as far as possible in it. The league is the longest competition and you get rewarded for your consistency. We are three points clear with eight matches to go and they will be eight finals. We know PSG are waiting for us to slip up. I no mention whatsoever there from the Brazilian uh, about this match, maybe because he's suspended, but maybe because it's a, a reflection of Monaco's perception of the match. Nathan, what's your take? Is this How seriously are the Monegasques to be taking this? I think that for them, seriousness is it, it's a cup final. I think any footballer will tell you that even in England, if it's the uh, EFL Cup as it's now named, or if you're in a cup final, um, the thing that counts at the end of the season of your career and what people focus on is silverware and medals. And 
Um, some of those players, although it's incredibly far-fetched to think of that way, some of them might not win something like that again. And also some of them have not tasted that before. A number of this squad haven't tasted glory before. So winning something like this can be a real impact on those kind of players that pushes them onto the next level and thinks, yes, we can do this. It doesn't matter who we come up against. We know we can do it. Um, and it can be a real motivator, even though it comes at a, an awkward time. Like you say, uh, Coupe de France comes soon. Um, Champions League starts again in a couple of weeks as well. Obviously, the league starts um, next weekend for those two, at least. Uh, so the games come thick and fast, but this can be a real, real motivator for them. Um, and it also, ironically, puts a blow possibly to PSG as well. Um, because if you get that psychological blow of we beat you in the cup, we're ahead of you in the league, are you ever going to catch us? Is that going to give them the the rub that they need to push on to win the league? And Champions League, like he says, is more of an adventure. They hope that they can at least pull off an entertaining tie with Dortmund, as it looks like. But I don't think they'll treat this any less than any other game. And I think that's a great way that any footballer should do this. I, I, I don't think that any game is any less to anything, especially when you get to this stage of a competition where there's a chance at glory and winning something. Um, they'll be good for level. It'll be difficult, like you say, without Fabinho is the big loss. Um, City Bay, Armami Torre is a good fullback, um, but it'll be a big miss for them, at least attacking-wise. Um, Falcao, again, because of Mbappé's um, improvement and Jiman is always a good statesman. They've got good cover there, at least for this game. So I still think they've got enough in tank with Moutinho obviously coming in for Fabinho to do this. And I think that the motivation should right for Libby there, at least from Jardim, and he should be translating that to his players because this could be a real big moment. If they can win it and they can prove that they can match again PSG in these kind of games, it, it knocks their opponents and it might just give them the psychological edge to go, edge, go and win the league as well. All right, Philip, what about PSG? Now, they have they definitely have the luxury of being able to focus on this match. I think that their Coupe de France matches against Alvaranche uh, who are, I can't remember if they're an amateur or national side, but certainly not, not as challenging if there's an opponent as Monaco who have Lille. Uh, there are some concerns about the fitness of uh, Marquinhos and Thiago Silva. Presno Campembe as well. There's There's been some reports that he was held out of both of France's matches due to injury, not not uh, that he was carrying a knock, not because of rotation. Uh, so how do, how do the champions approach this match? I mean... Do uh, do Monaco actually have anything to lose from from this game? I think the uh, the pressure is one hundred percent on PSG and Unai. Uh, it's all it's all about uh, getting getting the silverware. That's what he was uh, he wasn't even even uh, brought in to to do that. I mean, it was supposed to be it was supposed to be a given, and uh, people will just uh, go absolute apeshit if uh, if PSG don't don't win the league. I mean, the pressure will be mounting and mounting and mounting, and and if PSG don't win on Saturday um, it will be all about, all about uh, Nasser what are you waiting for to sack this this idiot um, so it's it, it really is a very very tough situation for Peugeot to find them, uh, themselves in because they they were cleanly beaten at Lido in August uh, they didn't play I mean uh, they uh, they weren't outplayed by Monaco the Parc des Princes but they couldn't beat them um, didn't uh, didn't do much uh, for most of the game, and as a uh, Monaco equalised late late in the game, um, so this is this is basically Piaget's uh, chance to uh, to beat to beat Monaco fair and square, um, which uh, which they didn't manage at uh, at the Parc des Princes. 
And again, I, I think that Monaco have a lot of options that PSG do not have, and that uh, it'll be a very, very, very tough one, no matter who plays um, all over the all over the pitch. So yeah, good luck, Unai. All right, let's get some predictions then, Nathan. What would your score prediction be for this match? I'm going to go for Monaco winning on penalties, a one-one draw. And Philip. I was going. Oh yeah, I was going to say Monaco to win on penalties as well. I'm going to say two-two, just to you know be different. Okay, I'm going to go with a two-one PSG win. Ah. Okay, and then let's move on now. Just just a couple of league matches to address this week. We don't have a most enthralling set of fixtures, uh, but I do want to mention a couple matches. Nathan, we'll start with you. Uh, Marseille hosting Dijon on Saturday afternoon. Patrice Evers back from injury, potentially Bafé Gomis as well. Uh, in, in Marseille's ideal world, their champions project, whatever you want to call it, that Frank McCourt's bringing in here, this is the kind of match they should be walking every day of the week. But they were somewhat desperate in a fog-surrounded reverse fixture, needing a very late winner from Gomis to win 2-1. Now, Dijon are only going to be more desperate now uh, with goal difference just separating them from the relegation playoff spot. Now, Marseille had been on a decent run, def you know, defeating Angers, who had been informed, but then you get this scoreless draw against Lille, where they're really poor. What did this team have to do differently uh, compared to how they played at the Stade Pierre-Marois two weeks ago? Uh, put the ball in the back of net might be a good start. Um, <laughs> I think that they were a little bit toothless against in that Lille game against the side that were a little bit better than they'd faced recently. But obviously, they missed... Um, Gomis, who's, who's back now, although he was on the bench, so it was a strange one. Although, like we've mentioned before, Cabela had done quite well in this sort of false nine role and they'd managed to grab enough goals, but they were just tepid. They never really seemed to get out of second gear against Lille. They would never seem to have that urgency that, oh, we need to score the goal because they just assumed the goals would come. And, and Lille looked dangerous at times. There was a couple of opportunities for for Marseille, but there was that, that big opportunity, obviously, for Adair where... Um, Jan Pelle's really saved them at the end with a fantastic save. So they really need to just... this. Like you mentioned, this is a Dijon side who's not performed nowhere near as, as well as we expected in the last couple of weeks. They've let a couple of results slip from their sides, but they are dangerous. They have got two strikers that are scoring goals in Dionne and, and Tavares. So Mon uh, Marseille have to be um, aware of that eventuality so they need to get goals and they need to start finding more consistent goals because otherwise um especially for a lot of these players at least there's going to be changes in the summer and and some of them won't be here if they don't pick up the pick up the slap that they're having at the moment i think um excuse me that um i think that gomis will start this one um i think that they need to get players in and around him like they tried to support cabela and, and get those players like tovan who's maybe drifted off for the last couple of weeks, uh, although he did score the week before the um, the Lille game. And, and Paillet's maybe not been f flying on all cylinders and the midfield's not quite clicked whether they want to play Sertic or whether they want to play um, Van Quir or Sanson or Lopez. They've not really got that right mixture in that three as well. So they they need to just play with more belief in their attacking abilities with Gomis back on the field. Um they need to also then hope that their defence can be a little bit more solid than it was against Lille and not give them um, someone like 
Diony and Tavares, like I said, that are on foot, that have grabbed a fair number of goals this season. And even though Dijon's been struggling results-wise, they haven't struggled to find the back of the net. They need to keep them at bay for as long as they can, really. Um, but it's a really intriguing game, like you say, that this probably is diff- going to be much different from their uh, fixture that we could barely see back in the early parts of the season. But yeah, OM need to be nice and positive, especially if teams above them start slipping up, they've got chances to, to finish in Europe. So this is an important game for them as much as it is for Dijon. All right, let's get some score predictions. Philip, I'll come to you first. Um, I'm going to say 2-1. A very hard-fought win for Marseille, right. sorry. All right, I was going to say the same. I'll go with a 3-1. I'll be slightly more optimistic for the hosts. Nathan? I'm going to give Marseille a 1-0 win. All right. Now, Philip, I wanted to ask you about a match that I think is probably flying a little bit under the radar because of the Coupe League final, but I think mm. certainly maybe a sign of two teams passing each other, not in the standings, but way up and on the way down. Now, that's Bordeaux, who have been in fine form for the most part this year, losing Luna Monaco and uh, in PSG. They really turned in a great performance last week with Diego Roland netting a brace. It's a reminder of his ability, which we hadn't seen so much this season. Uh, Bordeaux also have a cup match this week, potentially tricky against Angers. But Nice, with their injury issues, uh, Lillian Cyprian, Paul Bice, uh, Munir Abadi have also been added to their already long-term absence of Alessandro Playa. Who, who, who places their priority in this match, Philip? I mean, nice want to make sure they're keeping space away from Leon, but Bordeaux also have a tricky cup match. Who, who, who puts more emphasis on this match and who looks set to come out the winner? Well, only I would say Bordeaux because uh, you don't have uh, those. Oh, that's good. Sorry? Hello? Continue, sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Philip, are you there? Um, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, you yeah. just cut out. Uh, because you have this uh, trip to uh, Rennes, which looks a bit more, a bit uh, less daunting, and Marseille hosts Dijon, as we said, and we all three of us predicted uh, a home win. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, and they have to, they, they, they honestly have to start playing well when, when I watch them, because every time I watch them, they just seem to uh, not play, be extremely cautious. Of course, those two games were against Monaco and PSG. Um, but uh, you know, please go over next. Do 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 something adventurous against this Nice side, who are without Cyprien, without a lot of players, and uh, who are getting tired of of this uh, quite long season. You know, now now's the time. Now's the time for Bordeaux to to make a statement of intent and having a a really uh, a big big result against one of the big sides in in this league, and that would that would. Yeah, proves that they they are they are not just the best of the West team. Then I mean that they could actually be uh, uh, um, finally the type of club that could actually challenge for European places and actually be good um, at it on on the long term because it's always been ups and downs and ups and downs all over. Uh, and I'm not talking about league league finishes. I'm talking about sequences of results. It's always they've been doing great lately and then. Uh, they play good side, they get either demolished or just don't play well. So, you know, I really do hope Bordeaux uh, play well and um, I don't particularly want them to, to get a result. I just, I just wish it, it will be a nice game to watch. Yeah, I think I think we certainly have to look at this team as being, you know, if they can hold on to these players, I think there's been recent rumors linking Malcolm with 
Monaco as a replacement for Bernardo Silva, for example. But I, I think that there's a lot to be said for this Bordeaux team playing in Europe next season and and really being a good rep- representative of France. They had a, a tough group, I think we have to admit, last season in the Europa League, did Bordeaux, mm. uh, with Liverpool and Sion not getting through there. But uh, you know, with this young, exciting team that are hungry to continue on in this in this vein, I think we've got a lot to look forward to. And this could be sort of a preview. And I think it's very well, rightly put, Philip. This is a good opportunity to lay down a marker, you know, having slipped up a little bit against Leon, PSG, and, and Monaco in the second half of the season. So prediction-wise, I, I, I'm going to go with a 2-1 Bordeaux win. Nathan, what about yourself? Uh, I, as I mentioned previously, I think I'm worried for Nice a little bit with the injuries they've got. I don't think they're as good in Bordeaux or really rising. Um, I'm going 3-0 for the away team. All right. And Philip? I'm going 2-1 to Nice. <laughs> All right. Just, you know, prove me wrong, Baldo. Prove me wrong, Balotelli. How about that? He's at home. Yeah. It's the place he scores goals, apparently. <laughs> All right. That is going to do it for this week. Remember to tune in Monday from 8 p.m. UK as we wrap up the weekend's results. Uh, for Nathan Staples and Philip Bargiel, I've been Eric Devin. Be sure once again to follow us on Twitter at GFFN. Visit our website at www.getfootballnewsfrance.com for all the latest news and opinions. Thank you, and until Monday, have a pleasant weekend.